You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Meaningless. Your life, your family, your husband, your wife, your kids, your job, meaningless. Your hobbies, your passions, the things that you're really good at, the things that you really strive to be in control of at all the times, meaningless. Your successes, your failures, your triumphs, your tragedy, your righteousness, your sins, all the things that you could ascribe to say, this is what my life is all about and this is who I am, all of it is meaningless. At least that seems to be the general consensus and the general thought of the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, this word meaningless, a word that basically means when you blow out a candle and the smoke starts to rise, when you wipe that away and you dissipate the smoke, that's what the word meaningless means, like a smoke that's blown away. And the author of Ecclesiastes uses that term over 35 times in the 12 chapters of the book. And because of that, because of the harsh language of meaningless or vanity that's used time and time again, as the author looks at all the things that life has to offer and say, none of those things mean anything. They're like a smoke that's just being blown away. Ecclesiastes feels a little bit like a book that doesn't belong. Because when we think about the Bible, even from the earliest moments in Scripture, the Bible is a book of hope. The Bible is a book that seems to tell us that everything about our lives has some kind of meaning. And it's for that reason that the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the first books of the Bible that ran into some problems making the cut. Before the New Testament was enacted, before the events of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts were going on, there were arguments among scholars, among Hebrew scholars, on if the book of Ecclesiastes even belongs in the canon of Scripture because it is so radically different from anything else we see in the Bible. And yet, here it is. Now, thousands of years after its completion, the book of Ecclesiastes still stands almost directly in the center of God's big narrative of the redemption of humanity. And in fact, as we're going to see, this is not a book to be skipped over. But this is a book of incredibly great importance, especially when we view it through the lens of the resurrection getting to have the opportunity now as followers of Jesus to look back and to see the book of Ecclesiastes in a new light. And so over the next few months, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to get to know a book that maybe you haven't spent much time in at all. Maybe you didn't even know the book of Ecclesiastes was a part of Scripture. You maybe knew the word was in there, but you've never really spent any time reading it. Or maybe you've read it before and thought, how does this belong in this good message of hope? But we're going to get to know this book that simultaneously speaks to our deepest areas of fear and concern and worry and hopelessness. 
and yet at the same time points us to the hope that comes only through Jesus. If you would, pray with me. Almighty God, we just ask and pray that you help give us some clarity. As we think through some of the big questions that Ecclesiastes asks, as we have to question in our own life, what things have meaning? Does any of this have purpose or value? Or is everything that we do just like a smoke that disappears? Father, I pray that you use these words of wisdom over the next several months to point our hearts directly to your true wisdom, the Word made flesh, our hope incarnate, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we spend this morning getting a little familiar with the book that we're about to spend a great deal of time in, God, help us to have a deep connection with your word. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the dark places in Scripture that we struggle to understand and that you would use your word to refine our hearts and our minds and shape them by the gospel. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's talk about the book a little bit. And usually when we jump into a new book, especially if we're going to go through the entire thing, I like to spend at least a little bit of time getting comfortable with and familiar with the books that we're going to be studying. And the book of Ecclesiastes is especially important, I think, to have at least some of the background covered before we dive into the text. And usually when you come to a book, when you start digging into the background, the question to ask is, well, who wrote it? Because we know the Bible has this beautiful, unique composition where it is the divinely inspired Word of God. But just like Jesus, who is all God and all man, Scripture has this beautiful human element to it. Where God used the lives and the words and the stories of over 40 different authors over a stretch of 1,600 years to reveal himself to humanity. And so with the book of Ecclesiastes, because there's not a name at the top, and in fact there's not a name anywhere through this book, where did it come from? Who wrote it? For most of the traditional interpretation, from the time it was written to the time that it was incorporated into the canon of Scripture, and throughout most of the early times, not just of the Christian church, but through these last couple millennia of history, this book has been traditionally ascribed to King Solomon. And that would make sense on a couple levels, right? Solomon, we know, contributed a lot to wisdom literature. He's recognized as this picture of wisdom in the Old Testament narrative and stands as this mark of a man who God said, I'll give you anything you want if you just ask. And Solomon said, make me wise. And in fact, when we look into the book, we start to see a lot of things that look and feel and sound like Solomon. Someone who identifies themselves as a king over Jerusalem, acquiring great wisdom and great experience of wisdom and knowledge. That word comes up over and over and over again. And so it would make sense that early readers of this book would say, okay, clearly that has to be written by Solomon. This is the testimony of a wise king at the end of his life. This was a man who had everything. He had power. He had wealth. He had relationships. He had great wisdom. And so this could very well be seen as Solomon taking inventory of all the things that he had done, all the things that he had accomplished, all the things that he had experienced, and kind of summarizing his life. However, 
A lot of modern scholarship and really some thoughts and whispers throughout history have had some questions about the fact that Solomon was, in fact, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the major problems is the way in which the book was written. The Hebrew language of the book of Ecclesiastes is much nearer to us than the language that Solomon would have spoken, the language that Solomon would have written in. There were clearly influences of a post-exile world, all the, the Aramaic and Babylonian and Persian influences that have come in as the people of Israel were scattered abroad that changed and shaped the language, shaped the language that the book of Ecclesiastes was written with. But even more than that, inside the text itself, we get a pretty good indication that while Solomon was a really important point of reference for the author of Ecclesiastes, it's not Solomon writing the book. Because by the end of chapter 3, the references and connections and allusions to Solomon begin to dissipate and disappear and are really never referenced again. And so what we can assume here is that this book was written by an anonymous Jewish teacher, somebody who would have lived in the late post-exile period. And so after the people had started coming home, after they were taken into exile by first Assyria and then Babylon and then ruled by Persia, they started coming back home and they started reinstituting temple worship and all these beautiful and important things. This was probably written by one of those late Jewish teachers, making this one of, if not the latest book written in the Old Testament. But the author is not the only voice we hear. In fact, when you look through the book of Ecclesiastes, the author seems to step out a little bit from the very early moments of the pages and begins to teach us from the perspective of someone who in the English Standard Version is referenced as the preacher. Now, depending on the translation that you look at, this narrator, this voice that echoes throughout the entire book that the author presents his words, is either going to be called the preacher or the teacher. But both of these words are not quite accurate to this person who identifies themselves at the very beginning when the author says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Because preacher does give us the indication that this might be a religious teacher. And teacher is a bit of more of a general phrase, but a teacher could be someone who teaches one person or many people. But the word here in this passage is koheleth. And a koheleth is defined as somebody who makes their living, who makes their profession by speaking to a kahal or an assembly. And so this person identified here, the words of the Koheleth, is the word of basically a public speaker, a person whose responsibility was to stand in the assembly halls and teach a large gathering of people, not just necessarily religious things, but insights into great wisdom. And that's how the narrator is identified from the very beginning of this passage. This is somebody who would have stood up in assembly halls and probably given this very lecture time and time and time again. And so the main character here in this story is someone who identifies himself by his, by his profession, by his occupation or his vocation. And it seems like there is a very intentional effort made not only by the author of the book, but by the narrator of the book to remain anonymous to be a person who is nameless and faceless. 
And again, while there are clear inspirations from Solomon, it seems more like this is the creation of a persona. This is almost a theatrical revelation of wisdom as this person stands before the congregation and tries to embody all of the vain pursuits of humanity. And so there's a little bit of Solomon sprinkled in here. There's kind of generic kings gathered about in this personality. There's philosophers and rebels and sinners and gluttons, people who are rich and powerful and every shade of human existence in between. And when we look at the preacher, not only do we find this as just a representation of humanity, but this is a bit of an analog or an avatar for us. I am here in the life of this preacher. You are here in the life of this preacher. We are all gathered in and consummated here as this Koheleth stands as a representative for all of us. And the teacher throughout the passages of Scripture here in the book of Ecclesiastes seeks and consumes and explores. He asks questions. He seeks after experiences as a proxy for all of us. A traveler who goes to the edges of existence and then comes back to report everything that he's found. And this report This answer to these questions comes in the middle of a section of Scripture that we call wisdom literature. And it finds a really nice home here amongst books like Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Songs, and even Job. And wisdom literature is something that maybe you've referenced before. Maybe you spend time reading through a psalm a day or a proverb a day for a month. And so wisdom literature is part of our normal conversation, at least the two big books in that section. But wisdom literature is a really difficult type of literature to approach and to deal with inside of Scripture. And so as the author here is using the words of the narrative to lay out this wisdom to the people, not only who are listening, but also copying down these words so that we now thousands of years later can read those words and follow them, I think it's important to now also ask questions about the type of literature and the genre of literature that this book makes up. Why do we have wisdom literature in Scripture? What does it mean? How do we approach it? Why should we read wisdom literature. Why is there even a section of this? Because so often when we think about the Bible, usually maybe you ascribe the Bible as mostly just being commandments. The Bible is some basic instructions before leaving earth, right? It's just God telling us what to do, how to live, and how to function. Or maybe you look at the core of Scripture as narrative because so much of the Bible is stories. And so you say these are stories about how God interacts with humanity, but wisdom literature really does jump out into a very weird category. And it's a small section of Scripture, but it's a very important section of Scripture as well. And so as we approach wisdom literature, I think there are a few things that we need to keep in our minds as we go through, especially this passage of Scripture, as we think about the purpose of these wisdom books. First, wisdom literature reminds us that God has a plan and a purpose for every aspect of who we are. And this is what's so beautiful about wisdom literature, because it's this nice little catch-all. When the commandments and the narrative seem to be silent about different parts of life, wisdom literature reminds us that God really does have a plan and an intention and a purpose for everything that we are, everything that we do, and every aspect of our lives. 
From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, or in Genesis chapter 1, excuse me, we are reminded that God is a God who creates with purpose. That not only did he create the material nature of the universe, but everything that he made was by design with a purpose to not only bring him honor and glory and praise, but it had a purpose and a function inside of creation itself. And the same thing is true for me and the same thing is true for you. The same thing is true about all of our experiences and the things that make our lives life. And so in wisdom literature, you find information about how to handle your finances, how to be a people who work in a way that honors and glorifies God, how to relate to your spouse, how to relate to your children, how to relate to your neighbors. In the wisdom literature, we find our emotions validated and sometimes amplified as we look through books like Psalms where we see the authors of Psalms sometimes at the highest of highs, sometimes at the lowest of lows, sometimes dealing with great joy and success, sometimes dealing with crippling depression and anxiety and brokenness, sometimes basking in righteousness, and sometimes being broken and humbled by sin. It's all there so that we can be reminded that, yes, these things have purpose, these things have meaning, and there's a way in which God intends for us to use them. But not only that, wisdom literature reminds us that we're not alone in our experiences. One of the reasons why we confess our faith together, why we confess our sins together, why we sing together, why we pray together, when we come together each and every Sunday, is because it can be really easy to feel like you are alone. To feel like there's nobody who believes what you believe. There's nobody who feels what you feel. There's nobody who experiences what you experience. That when you're going through good times, you may feel like you have no one to share those victories with. When you go through hard times and struggles, you may feel like no one could possibly understand. But not only has God called us together as a church to be reminded that we're not alone, but the wisdom literature and scripture reminds us that not only are you not alone, but these things that make you you, these things that sometimes can make you feel ostracized or alone, these feelings that can make you feel like no one could possibly understand what's going on, wisdom literature reminds you, no, this is part of what it means to be a human being in a world broken and wrecked by sin. And so not only do you have brothers and sisters in your church family or in your family, not only do you have a community that God has called you into in the here and now, but wisdom literature reminds you that you are a part of this great cloud of witnesses who have experienced these same things. I mean, just think about the fact that Jesus himself on the cross experiencing something that none of us could ever identify with, betrayal at the hands of his own creation, separation from his father. When he was trying to find the words to utter, he uttered the words of King David written down in the Psalms and found camaraderie in the wisdom literature. And so as we approach the book of Ecclesiastes, we are probably going to go through some big questions that maybe you've asked yourself and maybe you've thought no one could else possibly feel this way, but the wisdom literature is there to remind you that you are not alone, that your questions 
are not just echoing out in the darkness, but God not only hears them, not only knows them, but has been answering these questions in the life of his people for millennia. And finally, just like the rest of Scripture, the purpose of wisdom literature is to point us to Jesus. Sometimes it's very intentionally and directly like the Messianic Psalms. Sometimes it's books like Ecclesiastes that ask questions that have no answers outside of Jesus. And so as we go through this book, and anytime we go through any passages in wisdom literature, I want you to remember those things. That God has a plan and a design for who you are and what makes you you. That you aren't alone in your experiences. That you aren't alone in what you deal with and what you feel and the struggles that life can bring. And that all of these things, just like everything else, not only in Scripture but in the universe, is designed to point us back to Jesus. Who in a life that can feel so very meaningless, gives us purpose, value, and hope. For the book of Ecclesiastes in particular, John Walton, who is an Old Testament scholar, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, I love so much of what he's contributed to our understanding of how the Old Testament works. He points out a few things that are some key themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it might get a little blurry there in the middle, so I'll just read these out to you. The first thing that John Walton sees in Ecclesiastes is that life should not be expected to be self fulfilling. That the purpose of life was never to find our ultimate fulfilling in life itself. If life and our job, your occupation, your wealth or your possessions, if your family or your spouse or whatever the case may be is where you're trying to find your ultimate hope and fulfillment, Ecclesiastes is going to make it very clear that there is not real satisfaction there. All of the things that make us us, all the things that make life life, are not able to provide fulfillment on their own. And because of that, John Walton tells us that frustrations in life are unavoidable. And this is something that chances are you don't need the book of Ecclesiastes to remind you of. I have been very well reminded of that all week long. Because we started our week last week with covid and then my car, I guess, caught COVID too and started just spewing all of its liquids out on the concrete. And so I had to take that in the shop. It's still gone. And then at the end of that, by the time our car was just puking all over itself, by Friday I woke up and my house caught COVID and flooded the downstairs. And so these frustrations are very unavoidable. Sometimes they come a little bit at a time and sometimes it's just a beautiful deluge that just falls all over everything that you have. But you know this. Whether your week has been somewhat easy, whether your week has just been brutal and overwhelming, at some time or another, we realize that these frustrations in life just slap us in the face. And that sometimes there's nothing we can do about it. Walton reminds us that the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that the seasons of life must be accepted. There are going to be seasons that are good, Seasons that are bad, seasons that bring great joy, seasons that bring great heartache. Sometimes those seasons are very short and fleeting. Sometimes those seasons feel like they're never going to end. But just like the seasons, we can't change them. 
You may have woken up this morning and thought, man, I really wish it wasn't 29 degrees today, like I imagine most of us feel. It would be great if it were just 76 and sunny pretty much every day, but the reality is these seasons in our world have their purposes in the same way the seasons in our life have their purposes as well. But because frustrations are unavoidable and because these seasons of life must be accepted and all of these things remind us that life is never going to be self-fulfilling, John Walton points out that Ecclesiastes tells us that enjoyment of life comes only through a God-centered worldview. And I would add there that that is directly informed by the gospel. If you want to read ahead all the way to the end, the end of the matter in the book of Ecclesiastes is you better trust in and follow God because the way that he calls us to live is the only way in which we can find true fulfillment. And the gospel comes in and breathes new life into that passion as Jesus not only gives us a hope for an eternity, but he gives us meaning in every single moment of our lives. And so those are the things that we're going to be looking at and unearthing in the book of Ecclesiastes. But before we moved on from the passage, before we jump in to an in-depth look at this, I wanted to listen to the words of the preacher himself and let the preacher induce, introduce this passage to us, to give us his intent. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, this is how the book begins. The words of the preacher, the Koholeth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. What has been will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already. And the ages before us, there's no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And maybe you're here and you've felt some of this. Chances are, if you're of a certain age, you've probably felt this multiple times over the course of your life. Everything is just a cycle. I can work and work and work, and it feels like I'm just working in vain. I can try to save as much as I possibly can, but then one thing comes and all of that's gone. I try to be a good parent. I try to be a good son or daughter. I try to be a good steward. And I try to be a good employee. I try to just give everything I have and do things in the right way. And sure enough, something is going to come along and pull the rug right out from under me, and everything that I've done is going to feel 
meaningless. And even if I do everything right, two generations later, probably, everyone is going to forget my name. All these questions that the teacher asks, all the weight and the frustration that he feels, all of these things are still very much alive and felt today. We work with no end in sight. We see world-changing revelations. I wish I pulled the graph, but I didn't. But there's this amazing graph of Google searches in 2020. Highly recommend looking it up. Because every week, there was a spike on that list of new things that people were searching, things that seemed to turn the world upside down on its head. Do you remember in 2020 that space-studying people, right, NASA kind of people came out and said, hey, there's probably UFOs. And everybody was like, what? And then a week later, people were like, I don't remember that at all. UFOs, we forgot about UFOs because that's how quickly things change. That's how quickly information comes and information goes. The sea, it fills up and then it dissipates and then it fills up again. We obtain more and more and we find no satisfaction. We see all that we can see, and yet we want to see more. We hear all that we can hear, and yet we want to hear more. Nothing makes sense, and everything is trash. And I don't know how to navigate this world because it all at times can feel so meaningless. But as the teacher of these words was laying out those broken places of our heart. God was shaping his world to bring in the answer to that question. The difference between the teacher's questions and ours, even though they may be the same question, is that we have a very different answer. While the teacher walks away and says, there's nothing good under the sun, so we better just do the best that we can and follow God the best we can, because all of this is meaningless, we know that the gospel breathes new life into those questions so that we can say, yes, things at times may feel meaningless, and it may feel like there's nothing new under the sun, but on that Easter Sunday, God breathed in new life once and for all, and resurrection changed the answer to these questions so that not only do some things have meaning, but for the follower of Jesus, every breath we take has meaning beyond what we could possibly understand. And so the aim of this series as we look through this very unique book is to carefully look at the problems in our world. The problems that exist now are the same problems that existed these thousands of years ago. To ask these big questions to feel those big feelings, but to find their solution in Jesus. And so I'm excited about diving into this wonderful, confusing, and at times troubling, but beautiful book. And I want to encourage you to go ahead and read ahead and go ahead and be asking these questions and feeling these things so that we can bring it all to the table together with the prayer and the expectation that even as we may go through the valley with the preacher, we're going to find ourselves coming up on the mountain of the other side because of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you. That even though at times it feels like nothing makes sense and everything is trash and meaningless and empty, your son spoke a better word, breathed a deeper wisdom, took the vanities and meaningless things of this world and set them up to be a means of grace by which men and women and children would come to put their faith and their hope in the true wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. So Father, we just pray in advance as we dig through these deep questions that you would help us to remember again that we are not alone, that you have a plan and a purpose and a design for everything we experience, everything we feel, and that you work all things to the good of those who love you through the gospel of Christ Jesus. And we pray that at the end of the matter, we would trust and seek after you. We would remember your faithfulness and your yes and amens. And that our hope and purpose, value and meaning would be restored, renewed and affirmed through the death and resurrection of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.